Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery and Rich Lenkov of Downey and Lenkov. We begin today's show with Fox News and its parent company facing serious threats to their financial and reputational health. With that, we bring in author and professor Catherine J. Ross of George Washington University School of Law. Check out her latest book, A Right to Lie, Presidents and Other Liars and the First Amendment. Catherine, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Professor, let's get right to the point. Uh, Fox paid 785 million with an M to settle the uh, Dominion claims against it arising from the allegations surrounding the uh, election. Why do you think Fox settled? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, they had received really devastating rulings from the judge in uh, the preliminary motions and in denial of their request for summary judgment. The judge said there are a lot of facts that are very clear here, and one of them is that every single statement uh, pointed to in Dominion's complaint was clearly false. There is no fact question about that. You lied. And so he said the only remaining question for the jury about this is whether you met the legal standard of actual malice, which requires looking at what the defendant knew and when they knew it. And so this that brings me to the second reason, which was that the discovery process was absolutely devastating for Fox. A discovery process requires litigants to turn over to the other side all the material that is relevant to the questions. And there was a steady drip of horrible information about Fox, about what its insiders were saying to each other and what they themselves believed, and that they believed and knew they were lying. Um, So that was drip, drip, dipping, and it was going to be a long trial, and that was going to be covered every single night on every news media outlet other than Fox itself, which wasn't talking about the trial. In addition, the depositions, sworn testimony by the principals, including both Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, were horrifying. Uh, Murdoch, apparently, Rupert, told the truth, which as a former litigator is pretty stunning. Uh, And he admitted he could have stopped this at any time. And he had exchanges with other media outlets that he owns. Um, So it, it was really, and he said, you know, this was false. So that was all going to come up. And the judge said to Murdoch, you may be an old man, but you have to come and testify. You travel among multiple homes all over the world. You don't get an excuse. Uh, Finally, the judge had ruled out just about every defense that was remotely plausible that Fox wanted to offer, uh, relying on the First Amendment. And they really had nothing else. So they were stripped bare going into a jury trial. Um, And I think the principals did not want to testify. They didn't want the steady drip. 
Um, but I think it's also important to ask, why did Dominion settle? Because uh, my, my suspicion, of course, we don't know what happened in the earlier talks, but my suspicion is Fox wasn't willing to put enough on the table to make it worth Dominion's while to settle. And now Fox had a real incentive to short circuit the trial. And there was enough on the table for it to make sense for Dominion, which is, after all, not a public interest organization, but a privately owned for-profit company. And so that was that's their responsibility to their investors. And um, I kind of changed my view about what I might advise them as the money, you know, mounted up. So, Professor, Smartmatic, which is another electronic voting company, has a similar lawsuit that is currently pending and is likely uh, to go to trial in 2025. What effect do you think this settlement has on that other lawsuit? It's a great and difficult question because we're really speculating. Um, I mentioned how important the discovery was to the outcome for Dominion. Um, the Smartmatic suit is just getting moving. They haven't completed discovery. We don't know what that discovery is going to unfold. So um, assuming that the Fox personnel were, um, were as reckless in what they put in writing as they were about Dominion, and we have similar discovery, uh, then I think the prospects for getting a lot of money from Fox are high for Smartmatic. And I think uh, Fox is more aware of the uh, risks of letting all that information out in public, the risks of having to testify. But that said, the Dominion case was truly remarkable in the annals of defamation law because this was really like Hansel and Gretel left breadcrumbs and nobody ate them and everybody could follow them. We never see evidence like this that points so directly to actual malice. And so a lot remains to be seen in terms of what happens during the pretrial uh, discovery and exploration of information. The claims are also a bit different. It is true that the many of the claims that Fox personnel made about Smartmatic are completely outlandish and unconnected to any sort of truth. Like they said that Dominion was using Smartmatic um, programs. There's no connection at all. Um, they made Venezuela claims because many, many years ago, Smartmatic had provided election material when Venezuela was still having elections. Um, but um, they also have a lot of speculation in there. So at a certain point, Smartmatic told Fox, these particular things are not true. And Fox, in fact, uh, brought in an expert who agreed and on camera that they weren't true. Now, that doesn't erase the defamation. A subsequent retraction or apology or publishing you know, better information, truthful information side by side with the falsehood doesn't get you off the hook for defamation. And one thing that's been forgotten in a lot of this discussion is defamation only has to happen once. You don't have to repeat it. You don't have to have multiple defamations to win, although that may affect the size of damages. Uh, so those are some distinctions. 
But in addition, what I noticed in the Smartmatic, very well pleaded complaint, as was the Dominion complaint, um, they said Fox should have been aware that these were lies because there was publicly available information, for example, about where our company is based, and they lied about that, but they could have looked it up. The speaker and the publisher are under no obligation to independently research unless they have sufficient reason to doubt the truth that it amounts to the reckless disregard, which shows actual malice in a case about a public figure. And so um, I think one of the things they really need to be prepared to show is that it wasn't just that Fox could have gone out and found out. But this material was basically sitting in Fox's lap. And Fox should have known or had reason to know that there was a problem. Professor, you mentioned the amount of money that they settled for and how you know your view of their position changed given the amounts of money they eventually got. They had asked for well, 1.6 billion. Um, the company, the meaning was, I think, when private equity went in and invested in, in 2018, they were valued at something like 200 million. So I mean the lawyers. Objectively, did an incredible job in getting seven hundred, you know, almost eight hundred million dollars from Fox. Um, the other point is, you know, you could argue that because you know, Dominion was arguing that you can't put a value on the uh, reputational risk, the harm to our reputation that this has. You could argue actually that this actually supports their position. It, it, it buttresses their reputation because there's a coin, you know, there's a decision now. It's not a jury, it's not a verdict. We understand, but through litigation, it's been established that. They were on the up and up. They were not engaged in fraud. So you could argue that it actually had a, um, a, a affirmative effect on their reputation. But my question to you is this. They got a lot of money. The lawyers did a great job there. They didn't get an apology, though. You know, that was the one sticking point that a lot of people criticized about the settlement, that they did not require Rupert Murdoch or any of the on-air personalities to come on and say, I'm sorry for lying. Um, you can't put a dollar value on that, but what do you think the value of that would have been? And do you think it was a mistake in not getting that last piece of the settlement? Okay. First, I absolutely agree with your summary that Dominion came out of this looking golden, not just in terms of dollars, but reputation because of the judge's holdings and the size of the award. Um, it is extraordinarily unusual for a defamation case to resolve without a public retraction and or apology. And often it is said that the retraction needs to be proportional to the um, spread of the lies because you can't ever catch up with lies as the Supreme Court said. Once they're out there, you can't erase them. So people had speculated that Dominion was going to want, you know, repeated retractions, retractions on each of the shows, et cetera, et cetera. And instead, what they got was an absolutely astounding public statement by Fox, not a joint statement. And I just want to read it in case some of the listeners haven't heard it, if that's okay. Absolutely. We acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. We simply acknowledge that the court said this. We don't accept that that is an accurate summary. And the court's rulings found only certain claims about Dominion were false. The court said every single one of them was false. 
And so this is, I would say, not even grudging. It is really uh, sticking their thumb in the judge's eye, not to mention uh, withholding the more than acknowledgement, the acceptance of responsibility. And it was a, a stunning statement. And I am surprised that Dominion's lawyers did not negotiate what Fox would say, at least off the air in the immediate aftermath of the settlement. So, Professor, it's been an interesting few days since the settlement. We've seen a number of um, media figures, shall we say, including Tucker Carlson leaving Fox. Um, There's some speculation that there may be uh, more fallout beyond that. What effect do you think this is going to have on Fox, its coverage of elections and issues in general? There I have to deal entirely in speculation and hypotheticals, except I will say that the Los Angeles press and the people I've talked to in the entertainment community do not believe that Tucker Carlson was fired abruptly because of the Dominion lawsuit. And the cost of that, which incidentally uh, is not going to be what it looks like because they have insurance and they're going to have tax deductions. And by the way, it's a smaller amount than, um, I'm so sorry, the, the lunatic on Sandy Hook, uh, Alex Jones, had to pay. And he's a person with a much less deep pocket. Um So I don't think we've seen anything yet that suggests there will be an overhaul of Fox's business model, which depends entirely, as the discovery materials make clear, on responding to the anger and the wishes of their viewers and stirring them up. So if they don't have a business model that's going to work for that, I don't expect that they will have a major turnaround. I think they may, at least for a while, be a little bit more cautious about how close to the line they come. And the line is very important because if the jury here had found, had been able to go to trial and actual malice had been found, um, then we would know where the line can be crossed because we have not known how far you have to go to establish actual malice. It's basically never found. And that's one of the reasons Fox perhaps thought it could get away with this. So, and also it was such a highly extraordinary case that it was not going to suggest that everybody can go as far as they want or that everybody would be swept up in actual malice and being sued successfully for defamation. It was an extraordinary case. So it would have been nice to have that answer, uh, which we're now not getting. So they may be a little bit more cautious. They may try to craft language, but they didn't uh, get rid of some of the more Um, outrageous liars like Maria Bartiromo is still there with her show, Janine Pirro. Uh, Let's see how that plays out. Um, I also am very concerned that one of the lessons, not only for Fox, but for other, um, shall I say, less cautious or less respectable news organizations, whether you want to call them news organizations or not, is be awfully careful what you put in writing. You know, people in our society, and we see this not only in business, but for example, in divorce cases, and they say, well, I just thought whatever I texted my girlfriend was private. 
No, it's not private. It's discoverable. And so now I think people who work in these organizations may, at least for the time being, until they forget, be more careful and get on the phone or talk over coffee. And that will make these cases much harder to pursue. And I'm not offering legal advice to those people by saying this. I hope they're not listening, but their lawyers know. Well, we hope as many people are listening as possible, but very wise words as well. That's author and Professor Catherine J. Ross of George Washington University School of Law. Again, check out our latest book, A Right to Lie, question mark, Presidents, Other Liars, and the First Amendment. Professor, thank you very much for the insight today. Thank you. It was great fun being with you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast, let's assess the damage from the Teixeira breach and implications of national security. We're pleased to welcome in Alex Finley, former officer of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, also an author. Check out her latest book of Victor in Trouble and a contributor to Just Security. Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Alex, last week, Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira appeared in Massachusetts federal court where he is facing charges for leaking dozens of documents in what has been referred to as the biggest national security breach in at least a decade. These documents contain classified information regarding the war in the Ukraine and detailed U.S. intelligence on allies such as Israel and South Korea. These documents appeared on the Discord channel called Thug Shaker Central, which appears to be linked to fans of the YouTuber Oxide known for extremist posts. Pictures of some of these documents appeared on that channel and the leak progressively grew and spread. What do we know about these documents? How did Teixeira have access and why did he leak them? So I think the first thing to remember that this has really been discussed in the national media, I think, is sort of a, a post-apocalyptic type of leak. Um, I would like to address that first and say, look, no leak of these types of documents is good. Uh, but I would hardly put this on the level with the leak from Edward Snowden or uh, Alger Games, Harold Nicholson or Robert Hansen, which are sort of the biggest uh, breaches of, of intelligence over the past several years. Um, again, no no intelligence leak is good, but I would argue that this isn't uh, nearly as bad as uh, some people would like to paint it but, again, but it's not good. Um, 
the the issue of how somebody like this got access to to the information there's nothing wrong at all with uh somebody young uh you know entrusted with a number of big responsibilities we see that a lot particularly within the department of defense um but we need to really focus on here though is what the background check was how this person was given the clearances in the first place um i think with within the us government it has become extremely bureaucratic and so gaining a top secret clearance has become much more of a form checking exercise a bureaucratic exercise rather than a common sense process so that things like tashera's anti government views don't get found during that investigative that background investigative check something like that won't show up on a form that you're just sort of filling out and and uh, handing into the government so i think we need to address that issue i think also we we really do um the government really has been handing out top secret security clearances a bit like candy there are just way too many people who have access to that at this point the last point that i would make is that after 9/11 we really did do make it a motto uh, and a mantra across the intelligence community that we needed to be sharing a lot more uh the biggest problem after 9/11 according to the 9/11 commission was sort of this lack uh this uh this failure to connect the dots between agencies so while it is extremely important of course that we share information it is perhaps possible that that has gone a little bit too far and we need to be able to rein that in uh again it may be fine that somebody like tashera uh in his position not that individual but somebody in his position had access to top secret documents but maybe not all of the documents that he had access to so just because you have a ts clearance should not give you access to every ts document and it does seem like a lot of this uh, information that he was spreading was was disseminated quite widely probably more widely across intelligence agencies than it needed to be the position you mentioned alex and i've heard this obviously discussed a lot in the last week or 10 days the position you mentioned you know i would have thought before this happened before i heard of tashera that you know the biggest thing that's an air national guardsman from massachusetts would be worry about is like protecting boston from providence right why would someone in the massachusetts air national guard have access to such high level uh confidential information. Well, my understanding is that he was an IT administrator and it was that which gave him the access um but that's clearly something inside the bureaucracy that needs to be addressed. Uh my guess is within corporate America not everybody who does IT has access to everything and they and they have very you know they have large corporations in America that are very strict uh and secure with their with their information. It, it shows how much how much something gets printed out who's printing it out how many pages were printed when it was printed from which computer that type of a thing and some of that exists within the within the the US government of course but uh there are possibly some uh additional uh things guardrails sort of if you wish that could be put into place um again somebody who is an IT administrator might be you know have access to some of these systems but we need to make sure that they're only there uh to administer and to to help people make sure that they're logged on and that they don't necessarily have access to all of the substantive material that's on those systems. So Alex, social media sites, you know, pose unique challenges. We talk about it a lot on this show. 
And I don't think there's any exception here with respect to what happened. There's some unique challenges in terms of monitoring content from a security, privacy, and even a civil liberties standpoint. What are your thoughts on that? And to what extent is the fact that this was really leaked onto social media, a social media site, to what extent did that maybe play into how long it took for the leak to be discovered? Well, I think, like you said, I mean, part of part, it, it is difficult to discover if it's sort of tossed into, you know, smaller uh, chat rooms. Right. And I think we now have re- received the news that uh, it was sort of first discovered within one chat room. But they're now finding out that, in fact, these documents were going on uh, going online several months earlier. Again, it's it's resources. It's being able to look at these things. How, how do you know which chat rooms to be looking into? Um, and so. What we really need to be focusing on is uh, what was what was the motivation behind the leak, and so you're not going to be able to catch everything that gets put up online. So you want to catch it before it ever gets there. So you want to make sure that the right people have access to the right information only on a need to know basis, and that you you have trustworthy individuals in the first place that they're not then uh, in the position where they they think, oh, I'm going to go and share this with my buddies. Um, and what's what I think is getting even scarier about this particular leak is we are finding out that a number of people that were in those chat rooms are from several different countries, including from Russia, uh, possibly also from China. So in the end, what we're finding is that Teixeira really did hand over classified documents to Russian citizens. And that's that's a real problem. But again, that originates back with us his access to that information, his willingness to put that up for whatever his motivation was. We've seen no evidence yet that he was uh, manipulated or coerced into doing this. So far, it looks like it was a lot of ego that was involved, wanting to impress his friends, impress the people online. Um, but, you know, as we dig more, maybe we're going to see. We we have heard some reports that uh, he was having uh, direct messaging with the individuals and saying to them, I'll send you certain things. Uh, so now there's a question, was he then at that point being coerced and manipulated from the other side where people actually, you know, found out he was posting this stuff and they were trying to get access to more. Now, Alex, from a legal perspective, we know that he faces two charges. Merrick Garland said that he's being charged under the 1917 Espionage Act. Um, the first charge is unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information that carries a possible prison sentence of 10 years. The second one is a five-year maximum jail term for unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information. Do these penalties and does this charge from a you know piece of legislation that's over 100, year old, 100 years old still apply? Are they still relevant? And do you think that this individual qualifies for the maximum sentences under those two, those two charges. Well, I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I I won't speculate as to what kind of a, a sentence he should get if if he is found guilty in the system. Um, but look, these are serious crimes, and so you know, even if these are uh, older laws that are on the books, we certainly need to, uh, you know, ap- apply them now. These are very serious crimes. There's, uh, you know, even if he did it with whatever motivations and intentions he did, th- there are several consequences that that come with this. Uh, You had mentioned earlier that uh, some of the information was about spying on others. That, of course, creates diplomatic issues with our allies. 
what other information was leaked that now makes it easier for our adversaries to change their tactics. These are things that are actually aiding and abetting uh, the enemy, particularly this, this particular type of information that he was leaking. Even though, again, some of it was sort of general briefing information, but some of it was specific about uh, what U.S. intelligence uh, was forecasting in terms of Russian troop movements and other things. So that really is aiding and abetting the enemy um, in, in a wartime scenario. So there do need to be serious consequences to this. Again, that's former CIA officer Alex Finley. Check out our latest book, Victor in Trouble. Alex, thank you very much for the insight. Thanks so much. Continuing on the Legal Face-Off podcast, let's get to the latest on the Gwyneth Paltrow and Alec Baldwin lawsuits. We bring in Christopher Melcher, partner of Walzer, Melcher, and Yoda. He's made appearances on Extra, Fox News, Yahoo, and now the Legal Face-Off podcast again. Christopher, thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Chris, uh, we love the Gwyneth Paltrow trial on this podcast because it was one of the most compelling trials I've ever seen. It was certainly the public seemed to feel the same way. Um, you cover lots of celebrity trials. What do you think made this one so compelling and you know so so viewable and so uh, social media worthy? Well, I think the camera in the courtroom with a celebrity is going to be a hit um, every time. The facts of that case were kind of interesting to me as a skier because I didn't really understand those rights way. I mean, just maybe common sense I did, but I never had any training on right of way on a ski slope. But, um, you know, going into that trial, when I saw that it was was approaching, the facts didn't seem that interesting to me. But that camera in the courtroom makes a huge difference. Uh, right now, we have the Danny Masterson retrial in L.A. I mean, these are some very serious charges against him. Really, no one's watching that case. So I think the and because there's no camera in the courtroom. So short answer, camera and celebrity in courtroom going to be a hit. Let me just pick up on something really quick because I'm a skier, too. And I, you know, I, I literally try. I, I listened to a 90 percent of that. And I watched about 90 percent of the Paltrow trial because I found it so fascinating. And like you, I never thought about the code of conduct. I mean, you see it on a sign. And but actually, it made me think of all those rules. It also, you know, that one expert that the defense brought in that the jury said, a lot of the jurors said was the most compelling, you know, is a ski expert on the on the dynamics of skiing and accident reconstruction. And, you know, how important do you think, I mean, obviously a lesson that you take away from the trial is the importance of experts, right? The importance of having a more compelling expert than the other. And perhaps it does give you some confidence in the jury system to know that it wasn't all about celebrity. They actually listened according to at least a couple of them that I heard, the expert testimony weighed the credibility of each and decided in favor of who they thought was more credible. Well, sure. I mean, there there was that that expert testimony is a little bit difficult to reconstruct an accident like that. Uh, a lot of came down to he said, she said there there was one supposed witness, but he was far away from the the accident. He gave some inconsistent testimony. So it really came down to who did they believe? And the cross-examination of Gwyneth was some of the weirdest questioning. And if you if you, listeners, you haven't seen that, you should go and get a clip of that because it was absolutely bizarre and uncomfortable for me as a lawyer to watch. That lawyer made no points with Gwyneth at all on cross-examination, and it actually made Gwyneth look 
more relatable than I ever thought that Gwyneth could come across as because she was not dismissive or demeaning of these bizarre questions that were being asked of her. She was kind and that made her look good. On the other hand, uh, Terry Sanderson, the plaintiff, he got he got mauled on cross-examination. There were inconsistencies that came out. So I think I think what drove the jury decision was he said, she said there were inconsistencies exposed on cross for Terry Anderson, but there were really none on cross of Gwyneth. So, Chris, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow decided to go to trial here, but there are numerous instances where celebrities would rather settle cases then expose themselves to the potential scrutiny of a televised trial. Why do you think she chose a different route here? There was a lot of coverage about what she wore, for example, and how that was going to play with the jury, as well as her mannerisms, the way she spoke. So clearly there was a lot of scrutiny. She she was pretty brave in some ways to, to choose this route. Why do you think she did it? And do you think the verdict here is going to embolden other high-profile defendants to try more cases? Well, that's a great question because going into that trial, it was like, why Why didn't this settle? Um, couldn't, there, couldn't there have been a settlement? Why would she want to sit in a courtroom for, it seemed like it almost went on two weeks. So she's you know spending a good chunk of her life there, paying her attorney, and uh, apparently, um, and... And then exposing herself to cross-examination and, and with actors, they're in control of what their image is because they select the projects they want and, and they have retakes. But in court, we don't do that. We have no control over the questions that are asked and we have no retake. So I thought, wow, she's really putting herself out there. I was really not a Gwyneth fan going into it. And I thought that she would come out looking poorly. Um, but. It just happened that she ended up looking pretty good and it made her look like somebody who was standing up against essentially a shakedown lawsuit. So it turned out well, didn't turn out well for Amber Heard. And going into that trial, uh, when it started, I thought, wow, Johnny Depp is really putting himself out there and is going to damage his reputation. He should have left that alone. But the way it all just came out, he looked good and she looked bad. So my advice to clients is stay out of the courtroom, settle, don't take that risk. Um, and I, I just think that it's just toxic to their brand. Uh, unless, you know, there's a fluke where they come out looking good like these cases have shown. And speaking of you, you're not looking good and exposing yourself. I mean, to your point, I thought one of the best cross-examination on the recross of Sanderson was obviously when they brought out all the social media. I mean, you know, dozens of entries on this guy's social media where he's doing all sorts of activities when he is also alleging and crying to the jury that he can't live a normal life. So I thought that was a really artful use of social media. Turning your attention, Chris, to another uh, high-profile uh, lit- uh, piece of litigation that you have covered is the Rust shooting. So Rust uh, is the movie that just resumed filming now um, after prosecutors decided to drop the charges against Alec Baldwin. It seems strange that only a few months ago, I think it was two months ago, that the prosecutor so arduously and very notably on a lot of high-profile media vigorously defended her decision to bring these charges. Why does she now drop it? This is this is the one I struggle with, and I've been following this case from the beginning. The I think it was dropped not because of the facts. 
uh, or the strength of the case, but because this prosecution struggled from the beginning with this high profile case. This is, you know, a, a, a small county or state compared to like an L.A. or New York uh, prosecution where we're used to having high profile prosecutions or cases. They have the the experience and the budget to do that. In New Mexico, they don't. And this prosecution had to go uh, or the DA had to go to the county and to get funding to to even start this case. So they got funding. They got half of what they asked for for a special prosecutor. And then the special prosecutor that was hired turned out to be a member also, I guess, maybe like part time of the legislature. So Alex, very high profile and skilled lawyers, made a motion for separation of powers and really getting rid of that prosecutor. Then also pointed out that the five-year mandatory gun enhancement that Alec was charged with, which was a big hammer to probably get him to plead guilty to something, was put on the books after the incident occurred. So that's ex post facto. You can't do that. So there was a series of very embarrassing things. There, there was testing of the gun, which was, of course, needed to be done. But apparently they also did some drop testing of it, which damaged the gun. There was no reason to drop test it because the gun was never dropped during the incident. There was a question of whether it would go off spontaneously when you cocked it. But it was, should have never been dropped. So there was these mishaps that occurred that I think led to the charges being dropped. They could refile it when they're reformulating this new prosecutor team. But it the wheels came off because they didn't know how to handle a big case, in my opinion. So, Chris, Selena Hutchins' parents and sister have said that they're going to move forward with their civil suit against Baldwin. But her widower and son have already settled their case against him. What are your thoughts on this development? Yeah, I, you know, I haven't looked at the state law on standing, and that's the ultimate issue is who can sue for wrongful death. And certainly uh, the husband, um, surviving spouse of Helena can sue and, 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 and probably the child, which they did. And like you say, settled. Now we have a sister and mom suing. I, I, I just don't know that New Mexico law allows for that. So this seemed more like a publicity grab by Gloria Allred. Sorry, but that's just the way it felt. Um, but, you know, hey, if, if they have the rights, then they should pursue them. But it, I just don't know that it's a free for all that every relative has the right to sue for wrongful death. Again, that's Christopher Melcher, partner of Walzer, Melcher and Yoda. Christopher, thank you very much for the insight. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. 
It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It is now time for the legal grab bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Let's get to our two guests. We start with Grant Dixon, founder of Dixon Law Office in LaGrange. Find out more about his firm at attorneysmakingitright.com. Grant, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Along with Pat Milheiser of Milheiser Public Relations, former director of communications for the Cook County Circuit and Office Chief Judge Timothy Evans. Pat, thank you for being here. Great to be here. Tina, let's start off with the Supreme Court preserving abortion pill access, but for now. Yeah, Joe. So we were all watching this very closely last week, especially when the Supreme Court kicked the decision from Wednesday to Friday. And last Friday night, in a 7-2 decision, the Supreme Court, at least for now, has preserved access to a widely used abortion medication. And this decision stays a Texas federal judge's ruling that would have unraveled the FDA's approval of that drug from over 20 years ago. So the immediate impact of the Supreme Court's decision is to maintain nationwide access to the drug. Um, It's one component of a two-component abortion pill that is widely used for both abortions as well as miscarriages. The access will continue while the Texas court case progresses. And the issue that the Fifth Circuit is deciding is the scope of the FDA's authority to regulate that medication. And the, um, the next step is for a hearing in May. Not surprisingly, Justices Alito and Thomas dissented, stating that both the FDA as well as one of the companies, Danvo Laboratories, that manufactures the medication should not be entitled to stays. And Justice Alito actually went further to say that neither the FDA nor Danco Laboratories had demonstrated that they were likely to suffer irreparable harm. If the stay had not occurred, there were a number of things that were going to happen, including cutting off telehealth abortion care, as well as barring distribution of the pill by mail and approval of the generic version of the drug would have been rolled back. In addition, the gestational limit for dispensing the pill would have gone from 10 to seven weeks. Given that the decision had been kicked to Friday, I think there were a lot of people that were expecting that this decision was going to be consistent with um, the court's decision in June in Dobbs, which overturned Roe versus Wade and was also a Friday decision. Um, That decision, of course, leaves it to individual states to control access to abortion. And this is just a continuation of the whittling away of the abortion rights since the Dobbs decision. So obviously, Rich, something that we're all going to be watching very closely Um, At least for now, the rights have been, um, well, the the court's been stayed, the uh, decision's been stayed, but I think a lot of folks are not necessarily expecting a positive outcome on this one. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fascinating story in so many ways. I mean, I got a few takeaways from from this decision. I mean, number one, this doesn't end the argument. This just says that the stay should be lifted and that the case should continue uh, on appeal in the underlying courts, number one. Number two, 
some, uh, it's another example of this shadow docket sort of gaining strength, right? This is not a decision that was argued before the traditional route of the Supreme Court, but it's part of the shadow docket, which actually Alito in his dissent, which is a little bit wacky, um, you know, sort of uh, talks about in, in some detail. Um, the other important thing, I think, legally is that it's an example of this continued erosion of standing, you know, uh, what standing did this group have in this issue, right? I mean, they really didn't have standing in the court. Uh, I think uh, consider that when uh, issuing this this ruling. Uh, you can't just go to the Supreme Court for any reason because you don't like a law, right? You have to have some standing, some nexus, some connection to it. Um, and we've seen this throughout these abortion cases making their way up to the Supreme Court that this concept of standing is being eroded. Uh, and another- also the separation of powers, Rich. I mean, that's a recurring theme in a lot of the cases that we've talked about, too, is that there really isn't nearly as much of a separation of powers as there was even a couple of years ago. The whole notion of the EPA, I mean, this is the very reason for the EPA's existence is to either approve or not approve drugs like this. And we're talking about something that they did over 20 years ago. Right. And, and you know, it just... It, it it further underlines the hypocrisy of so many people on the other side of this issue, which is like, I thought Republicans believe in states' rights. And I thought the whole point of the Dobbs decision is to defer to the states. Well, why do you now have a federal judge stepping in and deciding this issue? And by the way, I thought Republicans don't want activist uh, courts, right? I thought they want legislature, legislators to deal with this. Well, what's a more activist move by the judiciary than this decision? That affects millions of people's healthcare, right? My last take is, you know, uh, it's an example of judge shopping, right? I mean, they found this one judge, Matthew Kaczmarek, whose history, he's appointed by Trump. He's incredibly anti-abortion. He wasn't shy about that in his confirmation hearings. And they found this one judge to rule on this issue. Uh, it's an example of this judge shopping that just shouldn't go on to this degree. But Pat, lots of fascinating you know, legal issues coming out of this. What, what's your takeaway? Uh, the same as what you just touched on, that this is a Trump appointed judge and, and they knew exactly where they were taking it to get the result that they wanted. And then you had the two judges on the Fifth Circuit Appellate Court, also Trump appointees. And you have uh, a Supreme Court issuing the Dobbs decision previously, also tilted by Trump appointees. So this is all uh, the post-Trump America and the, and, and the and the results of a presidency that I don't know that the public fully uh, appreciated when there was so many federal judges getting appointed uh, under his tenure. And we're about to step into version 3.0, right? You had version 1.0 who won an election. Trump 2.0 lost an election. 3.0 is coming back for the return. And this issue is going to dominate discussion in the 2024 election cycle. Uh, we know if the Supreme Court is going to eventually take this up after it works its way through the Fifth Circuit, uh, that wouldn't be any uh, sooner than the end of the year. But certainly it, it doesn't it, it, it doesn't look great um, uh, for uh, abortion uh, proponents, uh, given the direction everything is headed. Yeah, I mean, to that point, Grant, I, I don't think there's any, you know, people might be surprised at this, at this decision. Right. But long term, I don't think anyone should be pleased if they're, you know, pro-life or I'm sorry, pro-choice with the court, because the court is going to rule like they did in Dobbs. I believe that uh, this 
abortion pill should not be uh, uh, available. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Rich. And I think what's interesting as a lawyer and also disheartening at the same time is the political weaponizing of the court system. I mean, they're, they picked Texas, obviously, on purpose. The Fifth Circuit, it's a ultra conservative. Nobody in their right mind thinks that this pill is going to be on the market in you know 2024, 2025. It's going to get thrown out. There's there's no doubt. And is I think the only interesting thing about this opinion is that I'm admitted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court. I've never actually argued a case there. Always hope to, but never have. But the way this process works is, you know, one justice can say, "Okay, we're going to consider this," and then they they caucus, and if they have five people. They can then pull the case and start writing an opinion because they kicked this down the road. That means they didn't have five, which is really the only interesting thing about this decision is that that means that some there's a kink in the armor. Um, but I don't know where this ends. I mean, IUDs are next. I mean, are they going to bar condoms? Um, I, I, I don't know where this ends. That's the only scary part about the whole thing. Rich, this week began the jury selection in E. Jean Carroll's rape lawsuit against former President Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, actually, the trial actually began today. She's already testified, so we're well underway. Uh, she's actually got uh, a couple. Uh, it, this this lawsuit's uh, happening in Manhattan, or this trial's happening in Manhattan. Already this morning, Trump violated, not surprisingly, uh, a court order. Uh, Trump tweeted... Uh, about the falsity of her allegations. Uh, the judge said that, of course, this is entirely inappropriate. What Trump said uh, on his social media platform, everyone this morning, was that this case is a made-up scam. This is, of course, in the wake of all the other things he said. He said that E. Jean Carroll, the um, plaintiff in this case, who says that Trump raped her over 30 years ago in, Bur in a Burgdorf Goodman department store dressing room, he said that you know, this couldn't have happened because she wasn't his body type. He said that many times. Uh, he also said that he didn't know her. This never happened. Um, I don't know, Tina, like it, it would seem that after he was indicted a few weeks ago and the judge told him and his team not to engage in this kind of, uh, you know, social media name calling. But then he immediately did it. Right. I mean, hours after in that case, when he was indicted, the judge said, don't get into this. He went after the judge and the judge's daughter. So I guess it's not surprising that already in this trial, which after all is a rape trial, uh, Trump is not listening to anything the judge is saying. Yeah, I mean, he clearly thinks he's above the law. I mean, I think that that's something we've all recognized many times over the years as we've been covering various Trump stories on this on the show. I mean, what's really interesting is that, um, you know, there's also evidence that he mis had mistaken the plaintiff for Marla Maples way back in the day. And so um, he probably has no idea who's even suing him at this point. I mean, he's looking at the plaintiff as she looks today. And the whole conversation is about events that took place a while ago. I mean, he just he thinks he's above the law. He has no filter. I mean, this is I mean, it's like a reality TV show that's actually real life instead of a show. So I'm, I'm not surprised by any of this. I think short of actually putting him in jail, maybe then he'd stop if like his phone's taken away from him, but I don't think that he's gonna stop any of his bad behavior. Brett, you're a trial lawyer. Uh, these jurors were brought in 
in a special you know, vehicle. They were meeting at an assembly point. They were brought in uh, under a covered entrance. They were told by the judge to not use each other's first name. He said, the judge said, if your name is Bill, go with Joe for the extent of this trial. So the judge is really going uh, to extremes, I think, to protect the uh, anonymity and confidentiality of the jurors. Uh, what's also notable is, you know, they were asked questions like, you know, did you ever watch The Apprentice? Were you a fan of, um, you know, some of the social media? How difficult will it be, do you think, to get a jury? They've got a jury, but how, how difficult do you think it'll be for the jury in this case to put aside any notions they have of, let's face it, the most prominent defendant in the history of America and decide this case based simply on the evidence, understanding, by the way, that some of this evidence is over 30 years old. Yeah, it's going to be really challenging. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because I think there is a, uh, at least it sounds like there's a little bit of weariness of the games that uh, the former president has been playing. Um, and if I were sitting in a robe uh, overseeing this case, I'd have a self-executing order that if he violated my my orders I on confidentiality, I would put him in jail instantly. But it's he's not even there, by the way. So he's not... He, they can't even pull him out of court because he's not even there. Right, exactly. So I, I think it's going to your your point is very well taken, Rich. It's going to be uh, effectively impossible for them to ignore uh, Teflon Don and all of his uh, problems that he's had in the past. But he's he's skated so many times on things that would have sunk anybody else. I I, I can't predict where this one's going to go. Pat, his lawyer, Joe Tecapina, who also we saw uh, defending Trump in the uh, in, indictment uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, he's engaged in sort of the typical playbook for these kind of cases, right? He has attacked the uh, plaintiff's credibility. He's saying that she's only in it for the money. He said that she's only in it to sell a book uh, for notoriety. He also said that her testimony is unreliable because it's 30 years old. It's notable that the statute of limitations was waived in this case, in a piece of New York, New York legislation that allowed victims to come forward well after the statute of limitations has expired. So you think a jury is going to buy at this point those kind of attacks on one's credibility? I mean, legitimately, it's obviously fair game to argue that one's memory is not as strong as it would be 30 years later. But what about you know the typical attack that this is only in it for the money, that they're only in it for the money? I've yet to see someone really profit from alleging that they were raped by a high-profile uh, defendant. And I think that only works when the defendant is not a public figure and as a total stranger to the jury, you know, in, in terms of at least having a chance at effectiveness. In this case, and anybody who was paying attention uh, for, was it four or five years ago that the Access Hollywood tape came out where the former president was talking about doing exactly what he is being accused of doing in this case. And I think that that's a, that's a hard thing, I think, for any person to set aside but I do think I've served on a, on a jury before. When you get in that box and you are locked into your trial, I think you do, you, it is easier than it may sound to lock into listening to the judge and only doing um, considering what's being brought up in court. Um, so I think they can do that. But certainly there's this is a very old decades old case that that's never helpful. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's someone who it, you're really going to have to disregard everything you know about them. Uh, and they may be able to bring in that access Hollywood tape as, as evidence in this case. 
and, and I think that that only bolsters uh, the case against him. You guys think that Rich is good during these segments? You should see him in between. He's already wheeling and dealing and picking different guests and, and looking ahead at different shows. I already know who's on Rich Lenkoff's future potential guest list here on Legal Faceoff. It's got to be attorney Brian Friedman, who's representing both Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson. I mean, this guy's got, yeah, obviously an incredible reputation. Not only is he representing these two newly fired uh, major media personalities, he represented Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo is seeking still, I think, $125 million from being fired from CNN. Represented Michael Jackson, represented Chris Harrison when he left The Bachelor. So, yeah, this seems to be the go-to lawyer for um, at least media personalities who have been terminated from their contracts. But what's notable, Tina, in this case, you know, obviously we're talking about Don Lemon from CNN, who on Monday was terminated, what, 15 minutes after he left the show uh, or he signed off for the show that night, terminated by CNN. We don't really know the reasons why yet. Um, And then the same day, Tucker Carlson was fired from uh, Fox News in a similarly, according to him, surprising move. Uh, same day, of course, that the head of NBC Universal, the CEO, Brian Shell, was let go. Uh, in that case, we did hear that it was because of a relationship, an inappropriate relationship with a, with a female staffer. But, um, you know, what's notable, Tina, what I picked up on this story from a legal perspective is in both the Lemon and, and Tucker Carlson situations, they're being paid the extent of their contract. I mean, I think it was it's one of them who just re-upped in 2021. And these are very lucrative contracts, right? Uh, um, Don Lemon was the new star, one of the three stars of the morning show. It was not doing very well, by the way. And also Tucker Carlson is like the main uh, personality at, 8 a, at the 8 p.m. slot on Fox News. So I wonder why they would continue to pay. And number one, why would they continue to pay his sat their salaries. It seems like they were fired for cause, although we don't know the reasons why yet. But there's been lots of speculation as to why. Number one, and number two, to the point of Brian Friedman, why do you need Brian Friedman? I mean, I'd love to get the gig of representing people who are still getting their entire salaries. What a what a deal. What what else does he want? Obviously, he's looking for some kind of additional wrongful termination damages. But man, they're still getting their their paychecks. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Rich. I mean, I'm wondering to what extent they are claiming that there was a wrongful termination or that there were some sort of, you know, defamation or something of, of that ilk that happened around their terminations. I mean, I I would believe that they're paying these folks through their contracts trying to mitigate against litigation or to significantly reduce whatever damages they think they could be seeking should litigation ensue. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I know these guys are high profile media folks, but they're making a ton of money. Um, they both have strong personalities. They're all getting the money that is due and owing to them had the contracts gone to terms. So um, it sounds like they're still doing pretty well, even if they get nothing through court proceedings. Yeah. I mean, Grant, you would think we haven't heard from Tucker Carlson yet. We probably will, but we have heard from Don Lemon, at least he, you know, he put out a statement saying that he was surprised that no member of CNN management had the decency to speak with him. CNN has fired back, I think, in a social media post saying that's not true. We afforded him the opportunity to talk and he declined it. But you would think if you're paying this person that you fired for cause in Don Lemon's situation, it seems like he was fired because he was in charge of a toxic work environment. He was impossible to deal with. Of course, there's a famous quote he made on air that Nikki Haley was past her prime that, you know, uh, 
that that lit the world on fire. So that wasn't a good move. But that all seems to be for cause. Why would you not include a confidentiality agreement in this settlement? Why would you just continue to pay him a salary and let him go out and disparage the company? It seems like bad lawyering on CNN's part. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's it's especially because they gave Don Lemon the greatest unemployment package in the history of man. They continue to pay him through full term. And I, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but there's certainly more to both of these stories than we're being told. I, I, I'm suspicious by nature. I can't figure out why they both happened within 15 minutes of each other on two competing networks. That maybe that's a coincidence, but that's pretty rare. Um, it, it will be really interesting to see what we learn later on, and I'm sure some of this will come to light. Um, and I'm the only uh, surprising thing with Tucker Carlson is that he's been able to keep his mouth shut for this long. I, I, I can't imagine there's not something coming soon. Yeah, well, there will be. But, but Tina, you know, we covered the Dominion story uh, earlier. And uh, what we've learned in the last couple of days, at least, is that, you know, that the former producer for Tucker Carlson has now been very you know vocal on, on media saying that you know, Tucker Carlson was responsible for anti-Semitic comments and his staff were and it was a very misogynistic workplace and rampant sexual harassment. So we would not have known mo- most of that without the Dominion lawsuit. So uh invariably a lot of what happened to tucker carlson is tied up in, in, in dominion as well i mean i would agree with that um what's really interesting also is you know there's a lot of speculation now about what tucker carlson is going to be doing immediately right now and at the end of the day when you look at his fan base and how many people were watching his show I mean, there's just a lot of speculation that whether it's self-produced or whether he goes to another network, that he's going to find another gig very quickly. Um, as appalling as that may be to some, that um, he has the fan base he has. I mean, it's many millions of people. And I was hearing as recently as this morning that there's a lot of speculation about him starting a podcast, a TV show in relatively short order. And, you know, the speculation about what Fox is going to do because he's probably going to go head to head with Fox. Rich, let's move on to the fine line between actual wrestling and WWE style wrestling. Sucker punching is not a part of actual wrestling. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a local story. I think it was in Oak Park, right, where a uh, this video that's not getting, now gone viral, seen by millions of people, of a wrestler. I think it was fourteen. Oh, they just there's two wrestlers. One just they just completed a match. And the one who I think is the winner goes over to shake the hand of the loser. And instead of shaking the winner's hand, the loser uh, punches him in the face and the kid goes down and uh, the uh, assailant has now been charged, I think quite appropriately, uh, with uh, a charge of assault. The question here legally for our group is, is that the right move? I mean, is a proper number one to charge a uh, a teenager in this kind of regard and is uh is charging someone with assault appropriate when this person was obviously upset after a you know loss and was taking those frustrations in a way that maybe is not the right way but after all this is a sporting event lots of emotions lots of physicality in wrestling uh tina is charging him the right move absolutely i think that you know people need to learn how to behave themselves and this was just completely inappropriate. It is assault and he should have been charged. And maybe he'll think differently next time if he's in the same position. Maybe he will think twice before he punches somebody else. 
Yeah. Pat, what are your thoughts? I totally agree. Uh, and, and also because he's very unlikely to do any jail or prison time or anything like that. This is a perfect case for juvenile probation. And, and I read that story when it first came out and I, I thought I read, you know, initially the parents of the victim were not going to pursue charges. But when you watch that video, as I'm sure they did multiple times and you see the boy's head snap back, that's the most alarming thing to me. And, and if that was my son, I, I think I would want the same uh, result. Brad, let's take a look here at the video. We're not going to have sound, but I'm sure you've seen it. But um, what are your thoughts on this one? You can jump in and then we'll look at the video. So I will say that this is, you know, it is hard to watch as a parent. I think it's uh, just just so difficult. Uh, I'm curious to see what the explanation is from this kid that his his family's come up with as to why he did this, because there's nothing we don't see enough of the match to see if there was some kind of dirty behavior or something that he was alleging. It, it's just a, a complete sucker punch. And, and boy, I, I think the uh, the charges are very well placed and should be done there. You know, Pat's right. They're not going to the kid's not going to do jail time. But this I bet you if you dig into this kid's background, this isn't the first time either. Yeah, let's take a look. Let's go to the videotape, as Warner Wolf used to say. Oh, that's hard to watch. That kid yeah, knows it's an easy, I'll give it's him an that. easy guilty. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's everything you need, you just played. I mean, that's all, uh, you know, whether he chooses a, you know, whether it's, a, you know, well, I suppose it most likely would be a bench. If he, if he pleads not guilty, probably a bench trial. Um, you know, I, I just, that the evidence is there. I, I think it's as simple as you plead. If it was my son who did that, it would. I think we would we would talk to an attorney, plead guilty, and do the probation and learn from that. And maybe you go on and speak to sports teams about this. You know, turn it into into something positive for yourself uh, and and for others to know that this isn't you know this isn't a sport where where that's supposed to happen. And it's not supposed to happen in any sport when the play is concluded. That's appalling stuff. From wrestling to football, Tina, Tom Brady's getting a little territorial about his trademark brand. Yeah, and it's actually after my um, research, it'll be pretty clear why he's so territorial. So he's back in the news again, this time as a trademark litigant before the U.S. Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. So Tom Brady has a couple of companies that have the brand TB12, um, and he has gone after a Florida woman who has filed a trademark application to register the mark B2, um, which is used with clothing. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background, Tom Brady has filed over 60, yes, six zero trademark applications for his TB12 brand. Um, He has a logo where it's this interesting overlap visually of the B and the two. And um, it's used in connection with a wide variety of goods, including clothing. And he went after Freeman's application for B2 because her design also has an overlapping element of the letter B and the number two. Since Tom Brady claims he's been using his brand since 2008, he says he has the better rights because um, the applicant, uh, Chandra Brown Freeman, only recently filed her application. 
So the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board is almost like a court, but it's an administrative tribunal. And what it looks at is the registrability of trademark applications. So what the board looks at is whether when you look at the marks visually, whether they're so close that they're likely to cause confusion. This is not the first time that Tom Brady has gone after people who are using similar logos to his TB12. There was a Massachusetts resident last summer who filed for TB12 for clothing. Um, Tom Brady got a default judgment there because the applicant did not answer the opposition that Tom Brady's companies filed and that application went abandoned. What I find really interesting, Rich, is that you don't often see people who file over 60 trademark applications for the same thing. I mean, obviously he filed for the full gamut of things, um, but those filings alone were tens of thousands of dollars. Oh my God. Another, as if we need another reason to hate Tom Brady. I mean, this guy is like, don't you have enough going on Tom Brady? He made that awful movie, right? 80 for Brady. And he's still like, you know, trying to, I mean, hopefully he's retired now for good. We're watching Aaron Rodgers now, another, you know, um, over the hill quarterback uh, with his press conference in New York. Go away forever, Tom Brady. And like, sorry about that. Go away forever, Tom Brady. And, you know, he's tried to trademark this stuff before. Do you know that he tried to trademark, Joe, he he, he trademarked uh, Tom, Tampa Bay, uh, all sorts of weird uh, uh, trademarks, uh, applications, but he tried to trademark Tom Terrific. Now, do you know who Tom Terrific is? That's Tom Seaver. Like, you can't say Tom Terrific <laughs> without knowing that's Tom Seaver. Pretty soon he's going to want to trademark the in the Ohio State. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just stop it, Tom Brady. Like, go away and please go away forever. Pat, any thoughts on this one? The consumer knows. I mean, how much reason is there for it? You know, if you want to buy TB12, that's what you're going to get. You know, if you want Jordans, you're going to buy Jordans. You're not gonna buy the knockoff i you know i don't i don't, I don't think this hurts uh business all that much having having knockoffs out there well our next topic i was wondering if it was going to be a little bit too absurd but i think i could see our own rich lenkoff suing bruce springsteen for canceling a show possibly and if you're a musical artist you better not cancel a show in mississippi because they will go and sue you for it rich listen as you know i mean that's a great point i i'm a bruce springsteen fan grant and pat uh, Tina knows her husband David Susser knows even more, but I've seen Springsteen many times. I'm seeing him in Dublin, Ireland next week. But you know, I drew, I went to Columbus, Ohio a few weeks ago to see Springsteen, and guess what? As I'm checking into my hotel, I get a text: "Tonight's show is canceled due to health reasons." Devastating. Unhappy. We still went out and had a great time in Columbus, Ohio. But did I turn around, Grant, and hire you to file a class action lawsuit? Against Bruce Springsteen? No, but someone if you did. Had, if you'd called me from Columbus, I'd have say, stay in Columbus. You're not, you're not going to win that case. Uh, if he had canceled for, you know, he just he was just being a jerk and canceling, that's one thing. But, I mean, he, he clearly says he was having vocal problems. So, he, I mean, you want him to sing, ruin his voice? Hey, this, this is garbage. This is going nowhere. And it, it's, it's, it's dead in the water. You heard it here first from a plaintiff's lawyer, but Tina, the backstory of the, the Morgan Wallen case—I mean, someone has filed a lawsuit. I think it was dropped, but the attorney said we are going. We're still pursuing that, perhaps. But Morgan Wallen, as Grant said, 
you know, popular country artist, by the way, who has a history, right? He was kicked off SNL for violating COVID protocols. He also fell off the stage, really tripped on the stage recently. He also was seen on video using a, a racial epithet. So not without a, a history here, but what's important to note here is uh, this lawsuit at least partially was premised on the fact that there was a security guard on video who was seen after the concert saying the real reason Morgan Wallen canceled the show was because he was drunk and couldn't show up. So if that's true, now that's been subsequently debunked by the head of the, the record company, or you know he's saying that's not true, but if that's true, I could see something here. But yeah, I mean, listen, uh, rock stars are allowed to get sick and better, I think, to go cancel it than show up and do some half-assed show, right? You wouldn't want that. I agree. I mean, if we take it face value and can can take it face value that he was having vocal problems, I mean, that goes to the very heart of the nature of the entertainment that's being provided, right? If you go to hear someone sing and they can't sing, um, that's a problem. And that seems to be a justifiable reason to cancel a concert. And also, they're trying to prevent themselves from doing irreparable damage to their vocal cords, which is their livelihood. So now, if, as you said, Rich, we find that they're really, that it really wasn't that, and it was something, um, you know, much more, I guess, um, appropriate, then I think we're talking about something different. But if we take it face value and can, that it was a vocal cord issue, then I don't think there's a case here at all. Pat, I've been to a few shows where I want to sue the artist after the show. So maybe, maybe that's a more appropriate avenue. Well, my my version of your Springsteen is Pearl Jam, and I travel to see them uh, quite often. And that that's the only part as the consumer where you really get screwed. You traveled, you got your plane ticket, your hotel is uh, that price is jacked up because they can because of the concert going on. And then, you know, at least you're in a new city and you get to do something fun, but you don't get to go to the concert. Um, and then a makeup date doesn't do you any good because are you really going to get to go back? So it would be nice. We can obviously track now through credit card purchases what zip code someone is coming from. Would be nice if something extra could be done for people who came from out of town. But, you know, that's a lot of work and a lot of hassle, too. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's just bad luck. And I guess you got to do the best you can with the night you have. Rich, I'm curious, what'd you do in Columbus that night? Were you dancing in the dark or go racing in the street or something? Keep going. <laughs> nice. That's, that's all I got. That's all I got. Well played. Well played. You stepped I, uh, on the Ashley, everyone's favorite Springsteen song, so we'll get to the <laughs> Oh, <laughs> darn. I can't do that. That's a different show, Joe, in a second. Don't worry. You're not off the hook yet. I won't ask you your favorite Morgan Wallen song. Don't worry. Well, uh, Tina, why don't we finish with the opening statements that have been made for the trial between songs by Ed Sheeran and Marvin Gaye? Yeah, Joe. So Ed Sheeran is at it again with another copyright lawsuit. This time it's a lawsuit against him and his record label Atlantic Records. This case started yesterday with opening arguments and Sheeran's testimony in New York. So this lawsuit was filed back in 2017, and Sharon is being accused of copyright infringement with his song Thinking Out Loud, which the plaintiff claims is an infringement of the classic Marvin Gaye song, Let's Get It On. Our friend Ben Crump, who has been a frequent guest of Legal Face Off and who's representing the family of the plaintiff, the late 
Ed Townsend, who co-wrote the song Let's Get It On, said in his opening statement that there is a smoking gun proving that Sharon committed copyright infringement. And he says that smoking gun is that Sharon played his song and Let's Get It On back to back in medleys during his concerts. And plaintiffs actually showed a video of one of those concerts at trial yesterday. We have it, Tina, through through our own internal discovery process here at Legal Face Off. We have the video, too. And so whenever you're ready, you're ready to go. Okay, so just give me a second. So what's also interesting, and, and Rich, I don't know if you've got this queued up, is that there have been other artists like Boys to Men who have also performed a similar medley. And Crump claims that it's clear that Sharon saw the magic of Let's Get It On and capitalized on it. As these cases often go, and as we talk about frequently here on Legal Faceoff, Sharon argues that any of the commonalities between the two songs are chord progressions and rhythms that can be found in many pop songs and are basic musical building blocks. He took the witness stand yesterday and denied that the video shows any infringement. And he testified that he actually frequently creates medleys out of different songs at his live shows, including blending Thinking Out Loud with other hits. Interestingly, Marvin Gaye's estate is not involved in this case. Our listeners will remember that his estate won the Blurred Lines case against Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams a couple of years ago. Um, that Marvin Gaye song was Got to Give It Up and resulted in a, an award of $5.3 million and is being touted as one of the most significant copyright cases in recent decades. So Sharon's pretty empowered. Just a year ago, he won a copyright suit in the UK involving Shape of You. And he's become very vocal about feeling like he's being extorted in these types of cases. So let's see the video because I've formulated my own thoughts and would love to hear what everybody else has to say. Ed Sheeran is being sued for copying Marvin Gaye's classic hit, Let's Get It On, in his 2014 Grammy-winning song, Thinking Out Loud. Darling, I will be loving you Let's get it on. Copyright protection comes down to what's in the sheet music and not what was captured. Fast forward to the video now. We have the video where he plays the medley of this in the middle of his song. Now, there you go. Even Ed Sheeran's noticed the similarities between the songs. He's been seen performing a mashup of the two together. Another high-profile Marvin Gaye case involving Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke's blurred lines is a... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? I don't think any jury has the vocal or the audio ability to distinguish this. It'll come down to experts. I mean, the songs sound remarkably similar to my ear. And, you know, you and I have covered these stories for a long time. And I've done a deep dive on this one. I mean, you know, the chord progression is pretty similar. But there are areas where they differ. But, you know, this all changed with blurred lines. I mean, blurred lines really stood for the idea that um a vibe of a song you know you could be you could you could be sued and actually successfully recovered just because the vibe of a song is different so under that standard who knows but i don't know it sure seems to be accused frequently of copying but everyone these days we've seen all of us every artist accused of copying it comes down to something we talked about earlier tina and pat and grant when we talked about the gwyneth paltrow trial at some point you know you stand your ground as an artist and defend yourself or you pay most artists just decide to pay but 
you know, Led Zeppelin did it. I mean, they've been they've been fighting that case forever. So I don't know, Pat. You said you think these songs are similar enough to to uh, find in favor of the plaintiffs in this case? <sighs> similar enough for strong consideration. I mean, I think the jurors are going to hear these songs multiple times. They're going to hear snippets multiple times. And when you do that enough, I mean, I do think as a jury, they, they're going to start sounding the same. And that can certainly influence uh, a decision. Grant. Yeah. So, I mean, these cases come down to really two factors, the, the quantitative and the qualitative, as lawyers say. So, you know, how similar is this by an analysis in the computer? So they put them in like you showed on the video. And then how much of it is similar I, I, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on, on where you stand, it becomes a popularity contest on some level. If people really hate Ed Sheeran, he's in a lot of trouble. People really hated Gwyneth Paltrow and she, she really got in a lot of trouble. But it's, it, this is tricky. If you're an artist, uh, where are you going with this? Uh, you know, Taylor Swift had a, a similar issue that she beat on, on some similar lyrics, which is a, a different style of case, but similar idea. Uh, and I'm wondering if the record labels are going to be required to start indemnifying these artists for these issues. Are the the people who are writing these songs, are they going to have to have, carry some type of insurance for this? So when these, these probably crop up, that there's some issue that they have coverage for. There's only so many chords you can play, right? I mean, your, your buddy Bruce Springsteen, Rich, he only plays three chords anyway. So, I mean, come on. That's true. Well, let's finish up by going around the horn, everyone. We talked about Morgan Wallen. We've talked about Ed Sheeran. So what's, maybe, well, for a lot of people who tried to go to see Morgan Wallen, that would have been their favorite concert. What's your favorite concert of all time? Let's start with Joe Brand, because we always like to put Joe on the spot first. Joe, favorite concert of all time. You can't say Morgan Wallen. You can't say Morgan Wallen in Mississippi, we know. Uh, yeah, no, of course. Um, honestly, it was two summers ago. I went to Wrigley Field. For Weezer, Fall Out Boy, and Green Day. Um, it was awesome. I'm still trying to catch that high of how amazing all three artists were. And uh, yeah, that's that's my uh, top one so far. All right, Tina, that's a good one. Very tough. Um, I have to mention two, two concerts. Um, I had Front Row to Fleetwood Mac a number of years ago and had a chance to meet Lindsey Buckingham after the show because he's very gracious about coming out and signing autographs. And so had that chance. And then Tim Finn, who started Split Ends, he and his brother were in Crowded House together. Many years ago, um, I had the opportunity to meet him and hang out with him backstage at a concert um, at the Park West. And he's definitely one of my top artists of all time, especially given that he started Split Ends, which is probably my favorite band of all time. So those are my two favorite shows. Pat? Probably the coolest in terms of proximity was second row for Bob Dylan in on my birthday in 1997 at the Eagles Ballroom in Milwaukee uh, when I was a freshman in college. It was right there. Time Out of Mind just came out. That's now a classic of his. He played most of it. And that was just a really uh, cool experience. You did not even pick Pearl Jam. I'm shocked. Wait till no, I know. Yeah. If I did, that's also in Milwaukee. Uh, but like 20 years later, as an adult, um, when they played at the old Bradley Center for, for the last time. Wow, that's a good one. All right, Grant Dixon. So uh, early 80s, John Mellencamp, height of his popularity. Uh, we had uh, 
good seats. My girlfriend, who is now my wife of of 30 something years, just he absolutely rocked the house. And it was just a a blast. And uh, yeah, John Mellencamp at his peak was really good. I saw John Mellencamp not at his peak, uh, but 10 days ago, he was far from his peak. Still a good show, but uh, Mellencamp. Did he bring the walker? Is he carrying the walker? I mean, he's that old now. He was smoking on stage indoors, which is a uh, total violation of Chicago City ordinances, but I did not write him out. My favorite show, I've got to run here to a depth that's already started without me, is, of course, Springsteen. And the best show was when my daughter, who's now 18, almost 17, she was uh, seven at the time, and she was pulled up on stage here at Wrigley Field. The same with Bruce Springsteen. You can look it up on YouTube. Just type in the words Emma Wrigley Springsteen. You'll see it. Thank you all so much. Great show, Joe. Back to you, sir. Wow, that is very cool. I never heard about that. I, I thought, was actually uh, at that show. David and I were at that show. And remember thinking, what a cute girl to get to get up on the stage with Bruce Springsteen. So Emma was famous way back when. That is really cool. All right. Well, a big thanks to all our guests here on this edition of Legal Faceoff Podcast for Grant Dixon, Pat Milheiser, our earlier guests as well, Alex Finley, Professor Catherine J. Ross, and Christopher Melcher. Our producers, along with Ben Anderson, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. Please do us a favor and give us five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks on the Legal Faceoff podcast. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Cover in sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.